Good morning. Uh, several years ago, our preacher for today uh, married into my family. Um, not my actual family. Where'd you go? Not my actual family, but uh, our family of our parish in Boston, the Church of the Advent, because uh, his lovely wife, Devin, uh, was a parishioner there and, and a friend. And the more I got to know um, Father Edward Thornley, the more I realized why she had married him. And uh, I think he is an extraordinary priest. He, wa- he studied at, uh, at Exeter, at Cambridge, at Yale, and uh, those are pretty hard schools to get into. And he also uh, was, after he was ordained a priest in the Church of England, he served in parishes and schools from Norfolk to London. And then he went to Fort Worth, Texas, which is like you do, I guess. You go from London to Fort Worth. And uh, he's recently accepted a posting to, a, uh, to another parish and school in Washington, D.C. And when he and Devin were traveling through, we prevailed upon them to stop in and stay a while. And I wanted you to have an opportunity to hear uh, him preach. I, I, I think that uh, Father Edward is a, uh, a fine priest and he's an even better friend. And I'm glad that he is, has agreed to come and preach the gospel for us today. Father Edward, welcome. In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. I want to talk about the first reading from Genesis this morning, because when you're offered a text like this, at a time like this, you can't really avoid it. This always happens when I'm a guest preacher in a new church. I always get the really difficult readings that everyone normally tries to avoid, and I often think God does it to me deliberately. Even if I'd chosen the easier part of Matthew's gospel that we just heard and bypassed the comments there on slavery, I would still have had to deal with Jesus bringing not peace but a sword and family dysfunction, setting daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. If any of you are hearing this and you're preparing to get married this year, just remember that. But reading Genesis this morning has made me realize that If I've learned anything about myself over the past four months of COVID-tide, as I've decided to name it, it's that I so often use Hagar's words as if they were my own, and I have no right. Do not let me look on the death of the child. The problem started when a pandemic began. A disease broke out the power of which is fed by the very meaning of what it is to be human. To touch, to embrace, to kiss, to be close to each other. Then there came the self-isolation, the purpose of which was ultimately to cure, yet which generated a social distancing which equally forced us to question what it means to be human, to touch, to embrace, to kiss, to be close. That distancing grew, affecting our ability to gather in communion and fellowship, at the heart of which are the essential yet now limited elements of our shared human experience. To touch, to embrace, to kiss. 
and through all this in an attempt to be even closer than that. And although we've tried and often failed to cope, we could be forgiven, however, because it wasn't really ultimately our problem. But then, three weeks ago, everything came home. When a man couldn't breathe from the weight of a disease, the power of which is fed by our denial of what it is to be human. No touch, no embrace, no kiss, not even close. You wonder if coronavirus was trying to prepare us for something else. Maybe, maybe not. But three weeks ago, and ever since, we've been reminded that this last social distancing is the one we chose. And maybe in a way the others were too. When we fail to follow advice and look out for each other, when we step back from our neighbor and we embrace isolation, allowing distancing to become a new normal in a somewhat defensive or defeatist move, when even though we try to worship and be a community of faith, a degree of isolation finally exposes our flaws as a church, our inability to embrace our calling to connect even deeper, be more resourceful, maybe, or creative, where we've relied too long, perhaps, on traditions and practices, maybe even buildings, which may need to be reimagined in some way. And then we realize in the midst of all this that the isolation actually rests with us. And our refusal to perceive and embrace those who are different to us, because for reasons deeply embedded through centuries of isolation, we would rather protect our fragility rather than use it and protect our comfort and our traditions and say, don't let me look on the death of the child. Don't make me look. Don't make me look at the death, the death of our neighbor, the homeless, the elderly, the care home worker, the African-American, the nurse, the church, the poor. Don't make me look at the death of your child. But those were Hagar's words. Although now, we've been forced to look and to look to one another, finally, If sin began in Eden, then slavery began in the wilderness beyond Canaan. Sarah used her slave, Hagar, to conceive for her a child with Abraham, Ishmael, an heir. But when Sarah's own son Isaac was born, she looked at Ishmael as he played with Isaac and decided that he and his mother should not have what she felt was hers alone. And so she sent them into the wilderness. This is slavery. A so-called powerful person uses a so-called lesser person for their own gain, discarding them as they wish. Such behavior 
is established by deliberately constructing associations and perceptions which place the so-called other in a position of unworthiness and subjection to whatever the so-called superior likes. This is racism. And we force the other away, hoping we can move on without looking further, without memory and without responsibility. Do not let me look on the death of the child. But these, in truth, are Hagar's words, not Sarah's and not ours. Hagar's words are a cry for grace in the face of death. This is reconciliation. Our words can so often be a deliberate act of isolation. And this is sin. The desire to avoid everything happening to us, letting it happen to someone else, letting darkness and disease and despair win. Yet thinking God will still somehow do something about it. But not anymore. How then do we live? How do we take these past four months, these past three weeks, even these past 2,000 years and more, and hear that calling anew in our hearts, like a song or a prayer or a cry for grace in the face of death? Well, this is what God says. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Amen.